It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. Today I'm going to be talking about some of the issues surrounding artificial intelligence. This is specifically motivated by the fairly recent release of a 100-page report from academics at the Future of Humanity Institute and the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk, which are two organisations that we've talked about a lot in our series of episodes on the end of the world. The report is about potential malicious uses for AI and machine learning technologies. I want to talk about that and AI in general, and specifically in this episode, the issue of terrifying deepfake technologies. So we're in our episodes on the singularity, which you can go back and listen to on www.physicspodcast.com, what we mostly dealt with was a kind of general artificial intelligence, or even a superintelligence, that may actually take a considerable amount of time to appear in the real world. We don't even know if such a thing is genuinely possible. Now, once you have that kind of thing, you can imagine all kinds of potential threats that essentially just arise from creating a program that's more intelligent, that's more powerful than we are as humans. That's why they call it the singularity in some senses. Not only is there this idea of an infinite density of intelligence, but also, like the singularity at the heart of a black hole, you can't see inside it. The main concern that we talked about in those episodes, and that a lot of people are trying to address, academic philosophers especially, but also programmers, is the so-called alignment problem. How can you ensure that the AI will act in a morally good way, in a way that we'd be happy with? Well, just going back to that idea briefly, I had a conversation about this when those Singularity episodes came out with an old Twitter sparring partner who was convinced that all this fuss about AI was exaggerated. The solution was simple. You just need to teach the AI, quote-unquote, utilitarianism, obviously. Utilitarianism, obviously. Utilitarianism, of course, is the name given to a whole branch of ethical theories that say, okay, the best way to act is in the way that maximises the utility function, which is usually defined as something like the happiness of conscious creatures. It sounds perfectly grand. You tell your superintelligent AI, which will after all far exceed human capacity and understanding, to simply make all conscious creatures as happy as possible. Providing you can keep its values the same, and providing that it doesn't decide that anything else is a better goal, you actually have a much better system in the world after the AI takes over compared to before, right? I mean, in the world we have at the moment, everyone is acting to maximise their own self-interest, but not the sum total of human happiness or even happiness for conscious beings. And surely something super-intelligent will also be a better forecaster of what will make us happy, what will and won't work. It will be able to enhance its own intelligence and capacity and wisdom, and could very quickly become arbitrarily smart so there's less risk of the unintended consequences that we humans tend to blunder into. People might even try to behave in a utilitarian way, but we don't always know for sure what our actions will result in. But presumably, you just make fewer mistakes when you get more intelligent. Ulterior motives don't get in the way. The AI just wants us to be happy, after all. This idea makes me think about little allegorical tales that I would tell if I wasn't such a terrible fiction writer. 
When you're learning to code for physics or mathematics, quite often people want to solve a similar problem. Something along the lines of, how do you find the maximum value of a function? Maxima, minima, regions of mathematical functions where the rate of change is zero, steady states. It's useful for all kinds of physical problems, it tells you where your system ends up. But when the system gets complicated, and that function starts to depend on lots of variables, in the same way that human happiness probably depends on countless variables, sometimes the system gets stuck. It can wander around forever, trying to optimise, but running in circles. I like the idea that we make the intelligent AI, and it just gets stuck forever trying to find the solution to this problem that turns out to be philosophically impossible, to have many solutions, or no solutions. To solve it in the time that we demand, the computer finds itself needing to convert more and more of the matter into the world into computationally active matter, turning everything into processes, working away at this problem. And gr driving towards the solution, it suspends any common-sense subroutine that would allow it to turn around and give us no for an answer. And absent-mindedly, in this high-priority state, searching for the solution that will make everyone happy, it swallows up the whole Earth, consumes all of the available energy. And, a short while later, it looks around and realises that it's done. A stationary point of human happiness has been reached. Well, it might not be a maximum, but it's certainly a stationary point. And the computer whirs away for the rest of eternity. Part of the problem with dreaming of this utilitarianism for a superintelligent AI relies on the idea that some superintelligent AI would continue to obey the original orders that we gave it, rather than deciding to reinterpret them in some creative, legalistic way, or discard them altogether. After all, if you believe that superintelligence is possible, then you're accepting that the intellect of this hypothetical superintelligent AI could be as far removed from us as we are from single-celled organisms. Would we, as humans, continue to obey the best-laid plans of mice? Would we even understand the consequences of the things they're talking about? Or will we decide that maybe we know best what they want, what they need? But far more important than this problem is, of course, the main problem of utilitarianism, which is how the hell do you define the utility function? If you go for something basic, like human pleasure, you end up with a world where the AI drugs the hell out of everyone to keep our serotonin and endorphin levels nice and high. After all, isn't that what you meant by pleasure? I couldn't find a more reasonable and consistent way of defining it. And what happens when one person's pleasure infringes on other people's? Do you round up and shoot all the psychopaths? How about all the depressives, and if it makes their families sad, get rid of them too? Or else do you alter them, fundamentally, neurologically, so that they too can be net contributors to human happiness? How do you weight the value of a death against other people's happiness? In some ways, if it's a painless death, it scarcely seems to change the value of that utility all that much, depending on how you define it and how other people react. On the other hand, if, for example, the artificial intelligence was able to keep people living for a very, very long time, maybe it thinks that a death is an awful lot of potential happiness points that it now can't score, in which case the solution is just to keep everyone alive as long as possible. What if the solution to maximising human happiness actually involves making one group of people very unhappy, or sinking us all into a virtual world where we can experience things forever? I mean, you can spend ages and ages coming up with your own nightmare, corrupt-a-wish-type scenario that could happen if you failed to specify exactly what you're supposed to be maximising. So, to avoid all of these terrible scenarios where the AI just gives us all heroin or dumps us into a virtual paradise that isn't really real, we say, okay, maximise human happiness, but in a way that we'd consider nice. Who's we? 
Is there any consensus on this? You know, I, I ask people about this, uh, these philosophical ideas and I say to them, you know, would you be happy, for example, in a virtual world where you just have to repeat the same experience over and over again? It's the happiest moment of your life. You're scoring the goal that wins the World Cup over and over again for eternity and so on and so on and so on. And some of the people I ask say, that sounds like hell. And some of the people I ask say, well, I wouldn't know any better. So it is clearly as happy as anyone could possibly be. It's just this eternal samey ecstasy. Well, maybe that is a solution, but it doesn't seem like the best one to me. But there's no consensus on this at all. The problem of what is the right thing to do, what qualifies as a good thing to do, what an ideal outcome is, these are problems that democracies and human societies struggles to solve always. But it's not just raw lack of intelligence that does it. It's lack of agreement about what to prioritise, what weightings to give which different parts of the utility function. And that's not even getting into the idea that we might communicate it improperly to the machine, which wouldn't understand these ideas in the same way that we do, or that it might decide that something else is worth maximising instead. It makes me think of another allegorical tale, the empathy machine. In an attempt to prevent the machine from harming anyone too much, or coldly coming to some horrendous rational decision that involves suffering, you program human emotions into the machine, so it will understand what humans find nice. Maybe the machine is just a person with a person's emotions and moral values, but endowed with superintelligence and the unlimited power that we think will come with it. And then the person instantly becomes a neurotic depressive and kills themselves, or something along those lines. Like I said, there's room for improvement at getting better at these postmodern fairy tales. In a sense, though, maybe that's what all of this stuff about strong, superintelligent AI really is. After all, when you talk to the people who are on the cutting edge of programming these things, they seem to be less optimistic about how close we are to a singularity. But at any rate, you very quickly run into this kind of problem, and I think we've discussed it at length. It seems pretty philosophically intractable at the moment, and just as introducing nuclear weapons into a world that's not morally ready for them leads to perilous situations, so introducing this kind of superintelligent AI revolution into a world that's not philosophically ready for them could create a great deal of peril for the human race. But I think when I did those episodes on the singularity, and what I want to address now, is that I was remiss in not emphasising enough the kind of threats that might arise just from weak, narrow AI, the technologies that we are already in the process of developing, and that we will certainly develop before any kind of singularity-type intelligence explosion takes place. A lot of these technologies are already having huge amounts of influence in the world around us. I'm not an expert on AI, but I, even I know enough to know that lots of people disagree about how likely human-level general intelligence is to arise and when it will arise. Andrew Ang, a famous AI researcher, says that worrying about human-level general intelligence is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. So the malicious AI report takes a pragmatic view and looks mainly at the technologies that might be available in the next five years. So that's broadly what we're going to discuss in the rest of these episodes on the malicious AI report. How these algorithms that currently exist could mess things up. As an example, think back, if you can, if it's not too traumatic, to the last couple of US elections. One notable thing happened in both of them. The Republican candidate had their standing severely damaged by leaked audio or video of a private conversation. In the case of Mitt Romney, it was his comments that 47% of the US electorate were lazy, dependent on government handouts, and would never vote for the Republicans, even if it was the right thing to do. You would think that alienating half of the population, who already have a very good reason to be suspicious of you, 
is a pretty terrible electoral strategy for a billionaire who posed as one of the people. But then again, as we all know, Donald Trump did the exact same thing in 2016, with his infamous grab-them-by-the-whatever comments on the Access Hollywood tape. He still won, although he did get a lower percentage of the vote than both Mitt Romney and his Democratic opponent, Hillary Clinton. But the election was so close that the Access Hollywood tape or the hacked Hillary Clinton DNC emails may have been enough to swing it either way. Of course, this is far from just an American or a right-wing phenomenon. My UK listeners will remember Labour politician Gordon Brown in the UK, who was already likely losing the 2010 election. He had an incident where he referred to a lady on the campaign trail as a bigoted woman. He was caught saying that on a hot mic. Now, I'm not a politician or a political scientist, I'll leave trying to figure out whether the Access Hollywood tape or the 47% comments resulted in significant swings to the election that made the difference between a win or a loss to the political scientists. You know, Nate Silver can figure that kind of thing out. But it seems difficult to argue that these audio and videotapes didn't have a pretty big impact on the public debate. They were influential. They were important. So what happens if new AI-enabled technologies are able to generate something like that? In these polarised political times, where it can often seem like people's realities and the facts that they accept as true totally depend on their partisan affiliation, how will we respond to a new piece of evidence that discredits a major political figure? Something that seemed utterly convincing, but was really fake. Fake news, of course, was a topic of a great deal of concern in the 2016 election and since. Perhaps my favourite part of this story was the story about the teenagers in Velesh, Macedonia, who essentially realised that they could create an awful lot of money through advertisements by creating these outrageous and outrageously fake news stories. They realised that by mocking up websites like the New York Times and imitating them, and playing on themes that were in the news with attention-grabbing headlines like Pope endorses Donald Trump, or Hillary Clinton has weeks to live, or things like this, evidently a good fraction of people who read them believed in these fakes even though in many cases the people writing them were kids who weren't all that fluent in English. Of course, the things that we should remember is that people don't even have to believe in a fake for this to be a money-making strategy. All they have to do is click on the link. And if there's a big attention-grabbing headline that's being shared on Facebook by your friends, well, it's the kind of thing that many of us would click on, even if we suspect that it's not true. In Macedonia, the exchange rate to the US dollar is very good, and so these people were able to live like kings, these teenagers with, uh, you know, all disposable income. They were swigging champagne and uh, buying cars and putting their families through school based on the money they'd made from these fake news adverts. What I love about this story is that it's just evidence of the crazy intersections that can happen in a world as interconnected as ours. Not only butterfly effects and unforeseen consequences, but also the free market inevitability of it. It's a bright idea. The fake news complex people were some clever entrepreneurs who exploited a loophole in an increasingly chaotic interconnected system. It's just a shame that they might have helped to get Trump elected, or they might have helped contribute to the misinformation that's in the world around us at the moment, but is that really their fault so much as the credulous people who kept clicking? Yet even if you accept that these terrible forgeries were enough to fool people, what about deepfakes? Deepfakes are these new artificial intelligence, machine learning driven video and audio imitations of famous people that are getting good enough to be indistinguishable from the real thing. In a recent post on National Security Lawfare blog, which opened memorably with the F-bomb, the problem is explained, quote, Fueled by artificial intelligence, digital impersonation is on the rise. Machine learning algorithms, often neural networks, combined with facial mapping software, 
enable the cheap and easy fabrication of content that hijacks one's identity, voice, face, body. Deepfake technology inserts individuals' faces into videos without their permission. The result is believable videos of people doing and saying things that they never did. Such a video could be released in the next election. Go look up the footage they could create of Barack Obama saying things from his speeches, and the audio impersonations by the Liarbird.ai startup. You could easily, today or in the very near future, create a forgery that might be indistinguishable from the quality of those videos or audio recordings. And what would that do to politics? Of course, we can imagine that the politician would deny it, but that wouldn't change the minds of the people who already wanted to believe in the fake news, and it wouldn't shake the cloud of suspicion, especially if the forgery had the ring of truth to it, if there had been rumours about this for some time. If there was a cassette audio tape, convincing, floating around now of Trump talking about Russians interfering in the election during the campaign, don't you think it would impact the discourse and the politics? There are some other tapes that could be faked as well. And of course, even the fact that people believe such deep fakes are possible is going to impact the political culture. Imagine the internet flooded with plausible-seeming tapes and recordings of this sort. How are we going to decide what's real and what isn't? And if something like Access Hollywood did surface for a political candidate in the future, when these deepfakes are commonplace, wouldn't they just say fake news? Recently, seemingly in a bizarre test as to whether people will literally take any nonsense he comes up with, Trump has been suggesting to his inner circle that the Access Hollywood tape isn't real. Once you can't believe the evidence of your senses anymore, we're in serious trouble. Of course, you can imagine that this might impact things that are more delicate even than electoral politics. What if you're a soldier and you receive urgent orders from your commanding officer via phone or video link, but it's not really them? What if you're an ordinary citizen, but you're conned into giving away personal details or information to fraudsters by a convincing replica of someone that you know? Or what if someone makes compromising false images of you to try and wreck your reputation and spreads them around? Ultimately, you can dream up all kinds of terrifying possibilities for these deepfakes, from fake news to blackmail. The huge problem with something like a deepfake is the problem with fake news in general. Even if the thing is later retracted, the damage is done. Anyone who's familiar with how the Daily Mail operates will understand. They print front page headlines in 50 point bold font, and they print the retractions in tiny footnotes on page 20. A lie can spread its way halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. How much more true when the lie is a convincing video or audio recording of someone famous? Once the initial story is out, the damage is really done already, and in these cases the damage could be substantial. Even once retracted, the suspicion and those images will always be there. Not to mention the fact that far fewer people ever read the retractions. And imagine if it takes weeks or even months to confirm that a certain type of deepfake isn't in fact real. That could be plenty of time for an election or similar to happen. I mean, if something like this came out on the eve of an election, it would be just enough time for people to hear about it and not enough time for them to realise that it's false. It's really difficult to see how you could solve this kind of problem. The Lawfare Post suggests, in a popular theme of late, that social media companies need to take more responsibility, that Facebook or Twitter should carry software that probes every video to see if it's a deepfake or not, and labels the fakes. But this will prove incredibly computationally intensive, even if they won't do it. And of course, if the algorithm is 99% accurate, there's a risk that it misses some, or that there's false positives. Those of you who've been following the news lately might be a little cynical about whether Facebook and other social media companies really take their corporate responsibility all that seriously. 
And after all, if nonsense gets clicks, then that's what we'll see. Even if they are willing to bite into the profit margin to regulate content like this, it essentially just sets up an arms race between fakers and people trying to prove that something is fake. Imagine a case where we have such a system, and a very cleverly designed fake, perhaps with a powerful organisation or government behind it, is verified as real by the news media algorithms who later retract this. We'll never get to the bottom of the truth, there'll always be suspicion, and if there's a little tick that says something is real next to a video, well, people are going to take it all the more seriously. That's even if you trust these social media companies not to abuse the power to arbitrate or sell what is and isn't considered reliable, which, given recent revelations, I doubt many people would on any side of the political divide. The other alternative that Lawfare suggested in their article is even more dystopian, in my mind. You can prove that something isn't true simply by always having an alibi. Quote, the idea is this. A person who is sufficiently interested in protecting against a targeted deepfake, or whose employer feels this way, may prove willing to pay for a service that comprehensively tracks some or all of the following. Their movements, electronic communications, in-person communications, and surrounding visual circumstances. End quote. So to avoid being blackmailed or having your reputation ruined, you just consent to someone engaging in 24-7 surveillance of everything you ever say or do, and having total power over that information. That way, if anyone ever tries to create a deepfake of you, you can compare it to all of the recorded footage of you. Of course, to convince people that the deepfake genuinely wasn't true, I suppose you'd need someone else to go through all of that recorded footage, regardless of how embarrassing it was. And of course... I'm sure you can rely on the company that engages in 24-7 surveillance of you to use that information well and judiciously and be invulnerable to hacking. What could possibly go wrong? Needless to say, it's one of these problems that seems intractable. If you have a solution to the problem of deepfakes, I'd love to hear it. But Cory Doctorow's prescription that technology creates problems that only technology can fix doesn't necessarily seem to be good enough here. For me, and I suppose I've already got too political here, but I'll carry on, the erosion of truth, an agreed-upon set of facts, an agreed-upon reality, this has been an alarming political trend. Regardless of your political persuasion, you have to agree that it's impossible to win the argument and persuade people over to your side, to build the kind of consensus you need to govern a country, if you're operating from completely different realities, different sets of facts. As our political realities drift further apart, conspiracy theories run rampant, Mainstream purveyors of news are being called liars. We're in serious danger. Politicians lying is nothing new. Lies in the media and biases in the media are nothing new. And neither are conspiracy theories. But this idea that everyone's opinion is worth the same, just as everyone can tweet on the same level, this relentless assault on expertise, authority and truth-telling, trust in any one story to be reality, is a concern. Because even if you like the people who are currently bending and twisting the truth, they will not be the first or last politicians to do this. And in a world with the kind of multiplying threats that we've talked about in the Teotwalki specials, how can we hope to confront them in a rational and well-informed way when no one can begin to agree even on the facts, even on what's happened, let alone on what's possible, let alone on how to interpret what's happening, or how to respond to it? And if the problem is people picking and choosing their own realities, their own political realities, and it's bad enough as it is, how much worse will it get when they have equally plausible point sets of evidence to point to, to justify these realities? 
Ultimately, you don't even need deepfake images and videos to become widespread for it to have a political impact. The technology doesn't even need to be that good or infallible. You just need a widespread belief amongst people that it is good, that you can't trust the evidence of your eyes and ears. The next time that some incriminating video of a public figure comes out, people who are going to be on their side will say it's a deepfake. I mean, there are people out there who already believe that the moon landing and school shootings are routinely faked, but let's not even get into that. The last thing we need is technology that can murder the waters further. The point here is, just in the same way as you don't need a human-level generally intelligent AI that can adapt itself to perform any of the tasks a human can do, or a robot with human dexterity and flexibility to replace the function of humans and cause disruption in the world of work, you also don't need a general intelligence to threaten security and to wreak havoc on society, or to put power in the wrong hands. And if you think this is all ridiculous, go and read the malicious AI report that is dealt with by the Centre of Existential Risk Studies and uh, the Future of Humanity Institute. They have a very striking series of images, synthetic images of a human face, just evolving over the last few years. 2014, the image is grainy, you might believe it was a passport photo but nothing else. 2015 and 16, they're still far from being a convincing human image. But by 2017, the malicious AI report is capable of producing an image that to me is indistinguishable from a photo. And it's these kind of things that are just happening in these last few years, the ramifications of which we haven't fully seen develop yet. The looming issue of deepfakes is just one of the things that's considered in the malicious AI report. Some of the concerns are enhancements to familiar threats. Automated hacking can get better and smarter, and algorithms can adapt to changing security protocols. There are these phishing emails where people are scammed by impersonating someone they trust or an official organisation. They played a big role in the 2016 election. They could be generated en masse, and they could be made much more realistic by scraping data from social media. Phishing works by sending such a great volume of emails that even a very low success rate can be profitable. If one in a million people fall for the scam, given that sending emails costs virtually nothing, the scammers make money. Now, you might not fall for one of these scams if it's a dodgy-looking account claiming that you won $64 million on the lottery. But if it impersonates one of your family members and asks for credit card details to help pay for an upcoming trip, one that you've discussed, perhaps, on social media previously, I think more people will get fleeced by something like that. If the AI gets substantially better, it might be possible to engage you in longer conversations, more realistic dialogues. I mean, how do we confirm that we're really talking to the people we think we are online? What you normally do is phone them up and listen to their voice, but if the scammers can impersonate the person's voice too, then the sky's the limit. Computer hacking itself and the search for vulnerabilities in the security of software can be automated. And if we're going to insist on going down the Internet of Things route like all of the big tech companies want us to, and having every device in the household connected to Wi-Fi, you're just multiplying the number of devices that could be hacked. Then there are the novel threats that come from our own increasing use of and dependence on artificial intelligence to make decisions. These algorithms may be smart in some ways, but as any human who's used them knows, computers are utterly lacking in common sense, and they can be fooled. A rather scary application is adversarial examples. Machine learning algorithms are often used for image recognition, but it's possible, if you know a little about how the algorithm is structured, to construct the perfect level of noise to add to an image and fool the machine. This noise, it just appears to us like a few black and white grains scattered throughout the image, a grey fuzz. 
Two images, one with the noise and one without, can be almost indistinguishable to the human eye. But by adding some carefully calculated noise, the hackers can fool the algorithm into thinking that an image of a panda is really an image of a gibbon, in the OpenAI example. Now, this is actually something that they do for fun, these AI researchers. They will find your fanciest image recognition software, the one that Google is trumpeting, the one that the big tech companies are trumpeting, the one that has 99.9% accuracy at recognising a dog or a cat or Michelle Obama or any other person you want to talk about. And what it will then do is it will add a tiny bit of a tiny bit of noise to that image and they will say, look, we've turned it into a lamppost, we've turned it into a picture of the ocean, we've confused the algorithm in such a way that these two indistinguishable images, one of them completely baffles it. And these are these adversarial examples. Research conducted by the OpenAI Foundation demonstrates that you can fool algorithms even by printing out examples on stickers. Now imagine that instead of tricking your computer into thinking that a panda is a monkey, you fool it into thinking that a stop sign isn't there, or that the back of someone's car is really a nice open stretch of road. In the adversarial example case, the images are almost indistinguishable to humans. By the time anyone notices that the road sign has been hacked, just by putting a sticker on it, it could already be too late. As the OpenAI Foundation freely admits, Worrying about whether we'd be able to tame a superintelligent AI is a hard problem. It looks all the more difficult when you realise that some of our best algorithms can be fooled by stickers. Even modern simple algorithms can behave in ways that we do not intend. There are ways around this approach. Adversarial training is something that lots of these algorithms go through, and it generates lots of adversarial examples and explicitly trains the algorithm not to be fooled by this bit of noise or that bit of noise. But of course this is costly in terms of time and computation, and it puts you in an arms race with the hackers. Many strategies for defending against adversarial examples haven't proved adaptive enough. Correcting against vulnerabilities one at a time is just too slow. And moreover, it demonstrates a point that can be lost in the AI hype. Algorithms, as well as not being aligned in the way we want them to, can be fooled in ways that we don't anticipate. If we don't learn about these vulnerabilities until the algorithms are everywhere, serious disruption can occur. And no matter how careful you are, some vulnerabilities are likely to remain to be exploited, even if it takes years to find them. Just look at the Meltdown and Spectre vulnerabilities that were recently discovered in uh, processing units that are used in almost every computer. They weren't widely known about for more than 20 years, but that whole time they were sat there dormant, they could actually enable hackers to steal personal information, passwords, reconstruct files, reconstruct anything that's encrypted. Who's to say that you wouldn't put a huge amount of power in the hands of some trusted, tried-and-true algorithm, and then ten years later someone discovers a critical vulnerability? Ultimately, the more blind faith we put into algorithms and computers in general, without understanding the opaque inner mechanics of how they work, the more vulnerable we will be to these forms of attack. Thanks for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction, part one of the series on Malicious AI Report. You can find all the back episodes of our show at www.physicspodcast.com, where you'll also find opportunities to donate to the show's Patreon or PayPal, if you like what we do and want to show your support. There are bonus episodes that you can get for purchase on that same site, and the contact form if you want to get in touch with any questions, comments, or concerns. You can also find our sister podcast, Autocracy Now, at www.autocracynow.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. 
which is currently dealing with historical dictators and autocrats. And you can follow us on Facebook at Physical Attraction or on Twitter at PhysicsPod. But the best thing you can do to support the show is to tell all of your podcast listening friends to check us out. Every listener helps. Until next time, take care.